For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara. And this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky, and I'm here, as usual, with Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. What's up, dudes? Hey. Hey. End of the summer. Yeah. I, I've been up for like uh, 20 hours. Really? Yeah. I, I woke up this morning in Scotland. What? And then I'm now I'm back here. Golf? I played some golf. I didn't go to play golf, but I did play golf. I played the old course. The old course? Yeah, birthplace of golf. Most boring podcast intro ever. This is our new golf <laughs> podcast. Long golf. Long golf. Uh, Evan, I understand you conducted an interview for this podcast this week. That is correct. I talked to Amy Harmon, who is a writer for the New York Times, who writes these very long, uh, very uh, human-centered stories about science. Uh, she's just really great at taking any particular science topic and kind of turning it into a very human story that you want to read the entire long piece in the newspaper. Um, and we've been trying to have her on for a long time. Yeah, she finally relented. If you're trying to get people to relent and listen to you, you need to get yourself a newsletter. Wow, that, was, that segue was strange. <laughs> no, uh, no, I like it. <laughs> yeah. Actually, it was perfect. Um, Tiny Letter makes it uh, a simple to start a, a, a newsletter, and uh, we thank uh, them, the good people at MailChimp, for their sponsorship. We also thank... Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. Go to squarespace.com, use the code LONGFORM8, you get 10% off. Here's uh, Evan and Amy Hi, Amy. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming. This is, um, I talked to you about coming on almost when we started it, I think. It was a long time ago. And you said, I would like to, but I have some projects in the works. And whenever those, one of those comes out, then maybe we could do it. Um, and that was a pretty long time ago. So <laughs> yes. uh, <laughs> it's great that not only to have you on, but also that you, the story came I'm out. I'm happy that it, it came out. It did come out. Yes, I am, I am happy. <laughs> so I first want to talk, before we talk about that story, which a lot of people are talking about uh, right now on Twitter and other places, um, I just want to talk about what you do at the New York Times. We're at the New York Times, I should say, in one of their uh, soundproof 
booths uh, because it seems, if not unique, it seems, I mean, there may be other people that have this role, but first of all, do you have a title? What, what are you described as? I well, yeah, I do have a weird job at the Times. My title, I'm just, I'm a national correspondent. I'm on the national desk of the Times. And, um, but I've for a long time sort of specialized or I, I've written about uh, the intersection of science and society. So, um, you know, sort of society and American life, uh, science and American life and technology and American life. And, um, and I've done it mostly in long form projects. And that's what's weird about my job because most of my, and it's what's like great about my job and I'm so happy and feel privileged to have my job. But it's also like what's incredibly stressful about my job because my colleagues are all churning out m- many more stories than I am and uh, a year. And so, um, and here I am like working on it. And I'm not in the investigative group where, you know, so we have, obviously we have a large group of people who are dedicated to, you know, working on year long investigations, right. and, you know, where they're right. going to sort of bring down the government or you know, they're going to expose some heinous, you know, some bad deeds. Um, but that's not what I do. Um, so I try to do um, stories that, you know, illuminate some facet of, of, you know, usually some kind of tension between science and, and, and the real, real people's lives. And, uh, and I try to do that through narrative storytelling. And are you, are you uh, exempt from, from daily reporting or, or other types of stories? Do you get pulled into other science stories or, or do you, do they say they know what you do and, when the story's ready, the story's ready. Occasionally, I, I will get pulled into news. Like, you know, I did a bunch of stories on uh, autism. And so, like, when Newtown happened, I was pulled into that reporting oh, right. because, the um, you know, it, there was some connection with Asperger's syndrome. And, um, but, but mostly I am pretty exempt. Um, and, you know, and, I, and it does feel odd. <laughs> um, but there are a few other reporters floating around who, who do projects like this. And, and you know, everyone, once in a while I go to my bosses and I say, like, are you sure that I should be doing this? Because, you know, it feels, you know, weird and it's stressful. And, and sometimes, like, my direct boss is a little bit like, I don't know, you know, what are you doing? And then, but, but I, I have had, like, you know, I had a Dean and Jill have <laughs> told me that, you know, they want, and I, actually at one point I said, well, you know, should I be working for the magazine? Because I'm basically doing, you know, trying to do sort of magazine-y stories. Mm-hmm. Um, but they like the idea of having some of these stories, I mean, like not, you know, obviously we need to fill the paper, and, and uh, but they want to have a mix, and they think that these stories, or they have assured me <laughs> that, you know, this is what I should be doing, so... So let's let's talk about this most current one just as a sort of way into what types of stories you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's about, you know, it's sort of topic wise about genetically modified food. Um, but really, it's a story about one guy. So maybe just t- talk a little bit about uh, right. what it is. So I um, I yeah, it's a story about the pursuit of what may be the first genetically modified orange. <laughs> um, and, you know, when you think about genetically modified food, if you if you do think about it, maybe I mean some people you know just don't. It's not really on their radar, but it's been increasingly on people's radar with kind of you know just this whole the whole food movement. And there's there was a ballot initiative in California um, last year to to try to get food any food that has genetically modified ingredients labeled. Anyway, so you it, but it's it traditionally been just these big 
crops like corn and soybeans are genetically modified. And you don't eat that. It's not even corn on the cob that's genetically modified. It's corn that goes into um, corn syrup. And it's like these sort of invisible ingredients that go into packaged foods. Mm -hmm. So oranges are different because they're oranges. And, and, and I predict, in the particular oranges that I was writing about, actually, it would be turned into orange juice because they're the oranges in Florida. And Florida is the main source of juice, the juice orange crop. So, so um, they have, <clears throat> it's a more sort of direct relationship. Yes. You're just, you're eating the genetically modified organism directly. <laughs> Whole, no yeah, drinking yeah, it. exactly. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I, I had been following a little bit of the debate over G, you know GMOs is what what they're called and I um, but I and I was interested in it because I, you know I was interested in it partly because there there seemed to be this you know real public um, outcry against GMOs or sort of just this in, in impulsive or instinctive feeling like, you know, I would tell friends I was interested and they'd be like, oh yeah, GMOs, I, I avoid them. You know, I, I try to avoid them. Mm -hmm. You know, people who are kind of like farmers market health conscious people. But they're, they're, you know, when I looked a little bit at the science of it, there, you know, there's really no real reason in terms of health to avoid them. And so it, it just struck me as an interesting issue, but I wasn't going to write about it. Uh, I, I didn't want to write, and there, plenty of people have already written about sort of like, you know, here's this debate, and yeah. here are these sides. Yeah. And, and so I was looking for a story, and um, I talked to some, a scientist about it uh, who kind of who sent me a bunch of like clips to read, and one of the clips had to do with, um, just made mention that oranges were under attack by a disease in Florida and that there might be something going on there. It was like a little mention in a bigger story that had to do with papaya, <laughs> genetically modified papaya. But I feel like papaya, and so papaya actually is the only other fruit on the market that is genetically modified. Oh, yeah. But it's like grown in Hawaii and, you know, I don't, it doesn't kind of have the, the central place in a lot of people's lives that oranges have. Oh, interesting. So, <laughs> so you could have, I mean... That's like choosing a character. Yeah. Like choosing the better character. Yes. Orange is a better character. Yes. Than well, and also oranges were, were were only just happening. So, like, part of what I try to do in general when I'm choosing these stories in, in, is, like, to choose a story where I think I can, where some of it has already happened, but I can witness. You know, I want my stories to have, like, a real arc, like an, like a, you know, like a beginning, a middle, and an, and a real end, and and some of that is it's always a gamble. Like you know, what's the end going to be? You don't you don't know. But I kind of thought, well, oranges were at there, so I called this guy. I just I, there was a guy, a company's name was mentioned in this other story, um, and I I actually didn't think that they would they would. I mean, I didn't think they would let me in because it is so controversial. Yeah. Because, but this this guy Rick Cress, who kind of became my character. Um, return my call, the president of Southern Garden Citrus. So you reached him directly. You didn't have to go through a person who was trying to uh, mediate. You know, first a PR person called me back. Uh huh. And then she just kind of like asked me a few questions and what, what, what was I interested in. And then and then she just turned it over to him. And it's just it's kind of I mean, it is a relatively small company. And he you know, he's a pretty hands on guy. And I think that um, and, he, you know, he was I mean, I explained to him as I you know, that I, I saw the story of the oranges as I wanted to tell his story. Like, it, it wasn't going to be an antagonistic story. Like, like most of my, I mean, my stories are pretty much all, you know, I want I want to, I find a story that I want to tell and you want to sort of be empathetic to the character and like bring out the character. And, and so, you know, I, I, I thought that his story would, 
be a contribution to the debate over GMOs, but I needed to be kind of close in to tell it well. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I said to him, and he he agreed. Did, did he take much? Did it take much convincing, or was? It I mean, it, it, he thought about it for a while, and he like at first he didn't, you know, he put me off for a little while, and then he said, "Well, you can come visit, but like." It'll be an exploratory visit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like, so, so at that point, I had to ask my editors, you know, like, do you want to send me to Florida for an exploratory <laughs> visit? You know, I don't know. But, um, but they, I think they thought that it could be, you know, it could be a good story. So they sent me to Florida for an exploratory visit. And, um, and I think, yeah, so, I mean, he, it made him feel more comfortable with me. You know, I, we, we got to know each other a little better. And, and then he, he agreed to kind of go, go ahead. And do you think so? I'm really interested in this because I, I actually I mentioned this when we were emailing back and forth. Like I've I've tried to write about some of these like same topics that you've written about, including I had a story that I was working on about sort of GMOs that I, that I never did. Partly because getting from the general topic into that kind of story is so so hard. Yes, because those stories can be really boring and the characters can be really paper thin. Yes, and do you think that? When you found him, you were sort of like, this is my guy? Or in the exploratory trip, you were thinking like, all right, well, it depends on how charismatic this guy is or it depends on how, what he's really struggling with. Or did you sense that I've, I've stumbled on the one I'm looking for? I mean, I think that the story of the oranges, like, more than – most of my stories, right, are, as you're saying, about a character. Like, you care about the character. You're, you know, you're emotionally connected to the character. I mean, he – and and that was a struggle with this story. I mean, I you know, as much as I like Rick Cress, <laughs> um, he, you know, he's a, a sort of a straight ahead business guy. You know, there's a I, I start the story with a scene which was like the most emotional thing he really ever told me, which was when he was informed that this disease was found in his uh, orange yeah. grove, and it's his, you know he knew about the disease because it was you know decimating crops around the world and they were worried that it was going to come to Florida and he had just taken the job like a few weeks earlier and you know the guy his, his head of the head the guy who like is in charge of his groves called him on the cell phone and he and he said it's here and he pulls over to the side of the road and and the fact that he you know that he did that that he had that emotional reaction I was like yay <laughs> and I knew I like I had to start that way because it was it was like a the, one of the few kind of visceral moments and you know but then and then he said you know he sits like trying to think about what to do and he's just, you know he's anxious and you know and then he says okay let's make a plan and and like <clears throat> several people that I had read the story were like is that you know is that all he said <laughs> <laughs> like, let's make a plan. Like, it's not that dramatic. And I mean, and I, 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 I went, I asked him several times, and I asked the guy who was on the other side of the phone, you know, do you remember anything else? <laughs> like, Are you sure he didn't? <laughs> a single tear did not roll down his cheek. Exactly. But you know, that's who he was, and that's and that's okay, and that's fine. And I guess I, I, I felt like I had my story because I felt like oranges were the story, and you know, and he was kind of like the the guy who was trying to save the oranges and he himself didn't have to be like that that charismatic because we, we I had to make people care about oranges or you know if I think people sort of would just you know a lot of people drink actually I don't drink orange juice <laughs> oh, <really? laughs> but I like grapefruit juice but grapefruits are also um, susceptible to this disease I and could be saved that could have influenced your reporting in a way that 
should probably yes. should probably have the but public editor take right. a look at that. Um, <laughs> and when you when you arrive at a story like this, are you a person who wants to go? You know, you're going to go read uh, a bunch of scientific papers and try to know everything when you go in, or do you feel like because you're approaching it from a narrative perspective, you you want to sort of explore the story by reporting it through these people? Um, I really felt like in this case, and most, I guess, uh, I guess all my story, I, I had to do both. I mean, I, I um, one reason it took so long. <laughs> How long did it take, by the way? <laughs> I mean, it took a year. Part of the year was <clears throat> not, um, like I did, I did, I did another story about genetic genetically modified food. I did a story about the efforts to label um, genetically modified food in California. And I did. And then I had this other story that I mentioned to you that I'm working on that is not done. So mm-hmm. I was kind of going out like at some point I had to like leave this one for to do to make sure that I was present at the other one for different scenes and stuff. So I, I you know, I don't know if it's fair to say that this this took a full year, but it took a really long time. Um, and part of it was because I just I didn't know anything about the debate. It's like there's so much history and and like acrimony and and like you know like false accusations that fly and like I had, did I felt like I had to read all these papers and like and then every day also aside from like the scientific papers like were you know is it safe is genetically modified food safe you know is Monsanto you know using this to take over the world is what does it mean to have like crops contaminated with GMO? You know, with like I, I just mm-hmm. and you, if you if you looked into it at all, you like you know there's so all this stuff, and then aside from the background, like every day it, it's it is like it's in the news all the time. So like I would wake up and be like, oh, I have to like read these other five stories that are on the subject that I'm writing about right now. Yeah. <laughs> so um, and besides like. Then I was going to Florida several times and Texas and like trying to understand the science of the specifics of the science that I was writing about. So, yeah, it was a lot. And with this type of story, so you've you've I mean, in the story, there's this suspense that builds around this creeping disease. And then, you know, his efforts to try to, you know, find different scientists to explore what the possibilities are and, and, you know, develop the trees that will be resistant. And it's sort of all headed towards this point. But. How did you decide when to cut it off and say, okay, this is the point in which I have an ending. I'm ready to tell the story. Right. I mean, I I thought, I guess one thing that changed for me in, in the course of reporting is that I thought that it would happen faster. <laughs> so mm-hmm. part of the year was a little bit like, okay, like when is it going to, when am I going to have the ending? Um, but because he, he started out with these five approaches five scientists you know I, I interviewed them all I understood them all it was pretty interesting that you know that there were these d- different ways that you could use a gene from another organism animal or bacteria or plant to try to help the orange fight off this bacterial disease and um, and he was going to choose one and then and then and when he chose his one to go forward he was going to like it was going to become public, and he's going to have to file an application with the USDA to um, to test them and to and with the EPA. And so, I actually thought that somewhere along the way, I would witness some conflict. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like I chose it partly because I thought, oh, oranges, GMOs, like people are going to hear about it, and I'm going to like be able to tell the story of a direct, you know, direct. Com- I mean, we, like a there, meeting where people are shouting at him or something. Yeah, I mean, there are you know people like 
pretty regularly rip up crop, rip up field trials uh, of genetically right. modified crops, and you know, or at least protest them. Or so, and this was happening, and it did happen, like in England, while I was reporting the story, or it happened in New Zealand, or it, ha- it happened in like other places of the world, um, but not in Florida. <laughs> so you should have tipped off <laughs> some activists. Hey, do you guys yes. know this is happening? But the thing that that the the thing that happened that I didn't know was going to happen that kind of provided the tension that I, you know, I I was looking for was just this this sort of the rise of the popular movement against GMOs. I mean, that, you know, there was there was like this march against Monsanto, which had, you know, like hundreds of thousands of people around the world or the the labeling efforts. in I think it's like 17 states or more more than 17 states. And the first two states um, actually passed. Uh, laws that would require any genetically modified mm-hmm. food to be labeled. And labeling is a little bit different than just opposing the food, com- you know, opposing GMOs completely, but it, it's kind of a proxy for that, and it ends up being. Um, so uh, So he was facing that, um, that kind of cultural, you know, rise of the, this, you know, this sentiment against GMOs. Um, and and that that provide that helped provide also the other thing that helped provide the tension I I what I kind of witnessed which I didn't know that I would but was his like his growing realization of the difficulty of his task like not yeah. not the science so much but the um, but you know he started out kind of cocky I mean sort of like you know we're we're orange we're orange juice you know like like yes I understand that there's been this history of GMOs where people are nervous about this stuff but like this is orange juice and and. It's going to be tested and we're going to be fine. And his kind of like growing realization that he had to care more about public perception than he did about science almost. Hi, this is Max. Uh, I am being that guy at the party, the annoying guy, the schmuck who walks up to two people who are having a really interesting conversation and immediately interrupts it. That's me. But I've got a decent reason. I want to tell you about our sponsor. It's Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, you can go to squarespace.com. Use the offer code LONGFORM8. Uh, I used Squarespace for the first time a couple weeks ago. It took me like, I don't know, 20 seconds or something to set up a personal website. It really is super easy. Uh, Their templates are all really clean and nice and minimalist and exactly what you're looking for. Uh, if you run into any snags, and you probably won't, but if you do, they've got great customer service. They win awards for it. Go check them out, squarespace.com. Use Longform 8 at the end. You'll get 10% off. I'm going to slowly step back now. Here's Evan and Amy. That was. I felt like that was one of the things that was very compelling about this as a story about this topic because you have a character who's also kind of learning about it. Like, he's mm-hmm. not a scientist, and he's not even apparently like totally familiar with the public debate that's growing around him. And so yeah. not only does he have to solve the problem, he's sort of realizing, oh, even if we solve the problem, we, it may not get accepted. Yes, exactly. And it got it did get to a point, And th- this is something that we debated about whether to put in the story. And I, I kind of I, I wish that we had. But like, so he'd agreed to do this story with me. So which which in a way is a, is an, shows his confidence. Like he's like, yeah, I'm going to have a big story in the New York Times about this. That's cool. And then at some point, at the point in the story where um it's actually um he he reads the outpouring of hostility about the idea of genetically modified apples. There's mm, a genetically right. modified apple in the works <laughs> that's kind of a little bit ahead of him and which I cho- didn't choose to follow apples actually because um 
the particular type of modification is different. So they're they're using they're trying to they're turning off the genes that cause apples to um, turn brown when they're um, when they're damaged, when cells, their cells are damaged, um, which is a little different than tr- what, what they were trying to do with oranges, which is basically um, the orange crop will be, you know, it is on track to be wiped out mm-hmm. <laughs> and by a bacterial disease. And there's no, like, they've tried everything to control the disease, you know, pesticides and tearing trees out and finding another tree, like finding a natural mutation somewhere in the world, but there, there isn't one, there isn't a tree that's resistant. So they've tried all these things, and the, the, the only thing that they can think of really to fight the disease is putting a, g- a gene that can fight the disease from another organism into the orange. So anyway, that, um, so he, go, he gets to this point where he, like, he's, he's observed all this kind of growing anger or growing hostility in the public. And then he reads this outpouring of hostility on the like the website of the USDA. And he called me up and he was like, you know, I don't I don't know if I can do the story. <laughs> like, oh, really? <laughs> like this is months into the story. And I was just like, uh, well, <laughs> let's talk about it. You know, no, no. Uh, but so but to me, that was his that really was the moment of his his realization that like oh this public perception thing is a really big deal oh, maybe having a story in the New York Times isn't such a good idea yeah <laughs> I mean that's real tension too I guess it's hard it's a little bit meta it's too like self-referential yeah. uh, per, uh, that was the decision that we came to but. and so when you when you deliver this story I mean you've mentioned that you are even from like the highest up people you're sort of like given the freedom to do this and the confidence this is something they want but when you when you write a piece like this and turn it in do you face tension with your editors between a more newspaper like approach to the story like they want more up top they want more uh of you laying out the story and less sort of like we're going to build towards something no i i didn't in this case i mean i i um, there's always the question of the nut graph, right? There's like this, there is a, a newspaper, especially newspaper, and I don't know in terms of about magazines because I haven't really written for magazines, but, you know, there is a, a, a desire to have like two paragraphs where you explain why this is important and what you're going to learn from the story. And and some, you know, narrative writer, writers of the paper I know kind of chafe against that. But I, I, um, I actually don't mind the nut graph. I mean, I, I kind of like knowing what the writer thinks I'm going to, like, up front, a little bit. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't want to go on and on about it. Um, but so there's that. But um, And I did, I guess we did have a long discussion about how much to give away up front. Mm-hmm. So I always don't, I don't want to say what the end is, even though, like, that is sort of against, like, a newspaper-y thing. You know? Right, you want to hold it back? Yeah, wanna... yeah. so there was a lot of, I mean, I probably, that's the graph I rewrote the min- the most times, which is saying a lot, because I rewrote every graph <laughs> <laughs> a lot of times. But, um, but yeah, the, the, like, deciding how, how to say, like, just how to flash the tension that was coming, but not really say exactly what happened. Uh-huh. Um, and is this, is this, uh, this type of story, can this type of story get spiked? Like can it can it get killed? And I'm just wondering because like a you know a magazine writer would have faced this sort of like I'm going to turn this in, and they may say, Meh, yeah, it turns out not to be right for the mix. But you've worked on this for a year, and you know this is your job here. Do you do they also give you the confidence that like we're going to run something out of this? I'm always terrified that they're not going to run it. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that they would like not run it at all, but they could say you know, cut it down to 1,100 words, right. <laughs> you know, right. they could, 
radically reduce its scope and ambition. Um, and I'm always afraid that that's going to happen. And there's always that moment where you, you know, you give it to, so I, I work with, you know, one editor here and then we have to give it to Dean and Jill and you, know, you never know how they're going to feel about it. I guess we should say that's oh, yeah. Dean Bacay. Dean Bacay and Jill. He's the managing editor, editor and Jill Abramson. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we try to tell them all along, like, what they're getting so that's not a surprise. And uh, they, you know, they definitely bought into it early on. And I really tried in this case especially to explain the politics of this story because it's complicated. Like, mm-hmm. to, like this, is, it's a legitimate story just to tell, you know, but we already had a, fr- a front page news story on the fact that Florida's orange crop is being hit by this terrible disease and, you know, it's declining and, and, you know, growers are upset that there are losses and, and, and you know, so so that that's news. And mm-hmm. we had that on, in the paper. So this story really was a story about GMOs. Like what, what you know, is there a situation in which genetically modified organisms, um, you know, can be a good thing? Um, and, and sort of what does this say about the general um, impression that a lot of the public has that, you know, they're scary. Yeah. Um, and, and since, uh, you know, we've had the paper's major food writers like Mark Fitman and Michael Pollan, um, who writes a lot for the magazine, um, have been fairly, um, critical of genetically modified food. Uh, so I kind of, I wanted people to understand that this story was, going to try to challenge preconceptions, like negative preconceptions. And they understood that. <laughs> Which means that you also knew going into it that there was going to be a reaction. I mean, you were dipping into a, an area that people feel very passionate about, uh, sometimes based on knowledge and sometimes based on uh, fear, maybe maybe not. But, but so it did uh, garner at least some of that reaction, uh, including from Michael Pond himself. And I'm curious what your what your take was on on that. Yeah, Michael Pollan um, tweeted a really insulting tweet, actually. And I, um, and I'm like, <laughs> uh, yeah, he, he, Michael Pollan suggested that I had parroted industry talking points. Mm-hmm. He, he tweeted something that said, you know, something like, vague, like, interesting New York Times story, or important NY Times story, uh, to, like in in Twitter, so it's like the numeral two, too uh-huh. <laughs> many industry talking points, um, and then you know, but raises questions, and th- and then and then he like raised some questions that I actually didn't think the story did raise. <laughs> so so um, you know, it was uh, it was I was really upset about it <laughs> um, because it was really it's just like you know he's basically saying I didn't do my homework, and, and this is a story that I had spent like a year, like waking up every morning, like with a pit in my stomach thinking like, I have to make sure I check this. I have to make sure I check this. Like I had, compl- and like, I, you know, I really knew what I, I knew what I was talking about. And he mm-hmm. was suggesting that I didn't. And then he also just didn't, he declined to elaborate. Uh-huh. <laughs> then it was like, then like, you know, I was, I, other people actually before me were like, what are you talking about? You know, it was sort of, it was nice that, you know, there are a bunch of other science reporters um, from different organizations, I mean, like you know, Forbes and 
the New Yorker and all these people who I really respect as science writers um, were like, what are you talking about? You know, or, you know, or Amy, you know, Amy wouldn't do that. Or you know, some of it was just personal, <laughs> but some of it was yeah. also, I mean, and scientists, I should say. So, you know, there are people who are saying, well, you know, what are, what are you talking about? Like this story. And, and I said, like, this is a story about oranges. It's not a story about, it was very specifically not a story about Monsanto. Like that was part of the story was that, you know, people associate GMOs with these, you know, with Monsanto and big, you know, corporate food and all of this. And this was like, you know, I mean, Rick Cress's company, it's a company. It's not like, it's not a, like he's not a farmer, <laughs> but, <Yeah. laughs> but he, but he's not a big biotechnology company either. I mean, he's, he, he cares about saving oranges because he wants to like continue to be in business right. with oranges. Right. His industry is actually a different industry than yes. the industry talking points for GMO would be something coming from people who are developing that stuff. Like, themselves. Yes. Yeah. Right. So, um, yeah, I, I should say, you know, I also think he's great. I think his, his much of his writing and reporting has been great and enlightening about, you know, the food industry and he wants to, you know, reform agriculture, all for sustainable agriculture. But I think that in this case, um, I actually think he undermines his own cause because he is wrong on the science or he is like vague and misleading and or sort of like lets plays on people's fears about, you know, oh, GMOs sound scary. But even though there's all this evidence that they are fine. Mm-hmm. And like, like every scientific body, you know, independent scientific body in the world has said, you know, the ones on the market now are safe. There's nothing intrinsically dangerous about putting a gene from one organism into another and we can test it. And and like there's just it's the, the scientific consensus is so strong on it that to that to like pretend that it's not is I find it troubling. And I, you know, and I, I I at least just wish he would engage in the discussion. Do do uh, do folks here encourage you or or even I mean is there a feeling that once you do a piece like this you know it's going to be out in the world you're going to get reactions from people that you they want you out there defending it or is that more of a personal thing that you're I'm going to go out and defend my work I mean including against you know writers who also write for the New York <laughs> Times or at least the magazine I mean a colleague basically yeah um, is that do people pay attention to that here, or does that feel like something that's happening in a in in your own world that's more about you? It's kind of weird. Yeah, there's not really. Um, I don't know how much they know about it because I don't think like the the, the senior editors of the paper are really like creatures of Twitter. Uh-huh. <laughs> so a lot of it is going on on Twitter, and maybe you know maybe that's you know just kind of like its own closed chamber. But but it is really Twitter. Kind of is a public. Right. I mean, there are all like there. So there are people uh, arguing, but there's like lots of people reading them. And so, I, you know, I do feel like I have to go. And I mean, he basically just, you know, challenged my professional integrity. I mean, it's just and so, of course, of course, I have to defend it. And I was happy that other people defended it. Yeah. You had like a posse <laughs> of people who yeah. jumped on it as That's soon as nice. uh, as soon as it happened. Well, I mean, that I was going to ask you actually a little bit about your background, because do you have a science? Do you have a background in science? No. I don't. So that's another reason why all these stories take me a really long yeah, time. Like yeah. I've chosen to write about this intersection of science and society, which, I, you know, which I think, um, like, I mean, I a lot of science writers don't write about so much, even though, I mean, they write, I, you know, and I, I had, like, science writers that I really admire who just are great at explaining, you know, just science, like the pro- scientific discoveries and why they're important in, in the field of science. Um, so... M- you know, I, I 
I do think there's um, there's there's the other genre which I try to do, which is more about like how it affects people's everyday lives. But to do that, I do really need to. I need like I need to speak to so many scientists for so long who I don't quote. <laughs> so you're sort of studying up on each. Yeah, I need each to bit of yes, science that, yes. that's part of a piece. Yes, and so I, I like if I had if I had the background, it probably would be easier. But um, but scientists are pretty generous in that way with their time. I mean, in the, although it's sometimes it's sometimes harder than others to get scientists. Especially, I try to be upfront about it now. Like I try to say, like, you know, I'm this story is a is a narrative story about a particular you know protagonist or a subject like I'm probably not going to quote you <laughs> I used to do it after and be like you know th- I would send these emails like oh, thank you so much for you know you really informed my thinking on this subject but I'm sorry I wasn't able to quote you directly but now like I know I'm not going to quote them and I don't want to mislead them so so you know and sometimes it can be hard but I-, I will say like on this subject GMOs like scientists you know scientists not even scientists who are like engaged in doing genetic engineering but just like every biologist that i talk to like cares a lot about it because i do feel like the public is like misled about it mm-hmm. and so i got i mean i was not hard to get scientists to talk to me for this story so how did you how did you end up doing science did you start at the paper doing other types of national local national reporting yeah well i i um I graduated from the University of Michigan <laughs> in 1990, mm-hmm. and I was like, and so I started in journalism. Doing, in, with a journalism no, degree. I didn't do journalism. Yeah. I did. I was in American culture. I worked at the Michigan Daily. That's how I started the student newspaper, um, and I was the editor of the opinion page. So I wasn't even really like there to try to like train to be a journalist. I was just there to like write political things. Um, but then, and so I thought I was would go back to graduate school in like sociology, but I got a job to pay the rent really just as a as a researcher in the los angeles times detroit bureau (laughs) well that's a thing that does not exist anymore it doesn't no but cars it like cars are are still very important in los angeles so they had someone there to cover it was like the auto industry oh interesting so i like did i knew a lot i got to learn a lot about cars (laughs) which i was (laughs) not interested in at all but um but you know it was it was instructive and i i um and then the L.A. Times actually um, hired me, like they moved me to L.A. So I was just kind of attached to the business desk of the L.A. Times. And when I got there, this is like a long way of telling you how I got into science writing. But I, my only skill, having um, been like the first class at Michigan to be assigned an email address, was that I knew how to use email at the L.A. Times. <laughs> really? So at the L.A. Times at that time, there were no, like, no computers were connected to the Internet. You had, like, it was working on a mainframe with these dumb terminals. I, it sounds like I'm so old. I am so old. But, but I, <laughs> so um, I, like, was, you know, using email to stay in touch with my college friends. And so I, I had, like, I borrowed a laptop from their tech people and, like, put a, a phone line, you know, like, with a, a 2600 baud modem or whatever, at my desk, and they were like, "Wow, that's really cool! Like, what is that?" You know? and so, so, um, so that was how she's I talking started. on the computer. <laughs> um, I yes, and I gave them like their first tour of the World Wide Web, and so, um, so yes, yeah, so I I I started writing about technology and society. Like it was more, you know, sort. Of, how and like your parents coming online eventually like I, I used like all these sort of early internet stories um and again because I wasn't I was attached to the business desk but it, because technology was kind of that's what it was thought of as a, at the time but I really wasn't yeah. writing business stories um 
And then, like, later at the Times, it just kind of segued into I wanted to do science, too. Or, you know, I, I, um, I did a series of stories about genetic testing, um, which... A series that won the Pulitzer that Prize, one. if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yes, it did. So that was, but that it had like a similar kind of angle, which was like the science stuff, like just like the internet was used to be in like the province of scientists and laboratories and academics, and, and now this like genetic stuff was filtering out of la- laboratories, and the you know the human genome had been sequenced and like into people's lives where they could use these tests to learn about their ancestry or to make medical decisions, and what was that? What was that like and what were the challenges? That's interesting. In some ways, um, it sort of you don't you don't need a science background because you what you're actually reporting on is how these things are are starting to find a mainstream foothold. And so you're like on the cutting edge of being an ordinary, untrained person who is learning about them before everyone else and then trying to tell them what's happening. That's yeah, that's that's a nice way to put it. (laughs) Um, So and so you won the Pulitzer, but had you you got two. Pulitzers, but one's a uh, with other people. Did the which one came first? Um, the one with other people came first. So I that was also sort of out of the technology reporting that I was doing. The Times had a um, a series about how race is lived in America. It was called, and uh, they signed a bunch of reporters to different parts of people parts of life. So somebody went to a church. I series, somebody yeah. you know went to a, the army, um, and they wanted a like a business setting and it was also like the internet boom i mean this is like in 2000 so i um so i was drafted to to be to participate in that and i followed these two entrepreneurs one was white and one was black they they were partners and it sort of showed their different paths and how race affected um their paths mm-hmm. uh so that was that one that one the pulitzer um I was part of the team that that won that. And usually, I mean, uh, journalism awards are usually uh, really boring to talk about because most of them are kind of like fake awards that no one cares about, that people (laughs) get to say I'm an award-winning journalist. But the Pulitzer is an exception because essentially for the rest of your career, you have a little thing that attaches to your name almost everywhere that someone, uh, you know, says your name. But But I am curious, just without going too far into it, I mean... When you got one on your own, did that is that part of what carved out this ability for you to do these features, or are they sort of like a dime a dozen around here that people are sort of, oh. you know, like, yeah, that guy has a Pulitzer too, like? No, that I think that definitely gave me like the capital to say, you know, okay, I did this, and the and the, the stories. So that was a series of ten stories um, that were done in one in one calendar year. Although I worked on one of them for the previous year I always like to I, I mean I like to try to tell people how long it takes yeah because I feel like these narrative stories they just take a really long time so I don't want to like pretend that it only took six months right <laughs> so just crank like, them out um so the two stories in that series one was about a young woman who tested positive for the the gene that causes Huntington's disease I just went back and read that one it's oh. it's it's hard to read though it's a <laughs> I mean that disease is also really horrible. It's but. a dev- it's a really terrible disease. But 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 part of the point of that story, doing that story, was also to say like here's like the most extreme example of what you can learn from your your d- DNA. You know, it's definitive. Like you will, you know, unless you die of something else first. If you have this gene, you will this gene variant. You will get the disease, and 
it's a terrible disease. Most genetic information is much more iffy. Like it's, you know, like you have a probability of a higher probability of cancer if you have such and such gene or, you know, and, and, and you may never get it or, you know. So I just, yeah, I, I wanted to use that as the example of the kind of the worst case scenario, but also like what, you know, what you could really learn. And because I thought everybody would soon be experiencing bits and pieces of that. And mm-hmm. so, so her, so Katie Moser, who I read about then, um, it was really about how, how do you cope with this knowledge? And I feel like we're all gonna like have to start coping with some of that bits and pieces of that knowledge. Um, uh, anyway, that was, that was really my first n- real narrative like mm-hmm. that I did on my own. The race project kind of taught me that like what a narrative was. That was also a narrative, but it was much more like editor driven and and so this was sort of on my own. And um and I, I, until then I had mostly done like news features, mm-hmm. you know. I did like trend stories and they were like interesting and kind of in depth, but they weren't like a story about a protagonist who changes through the story and like comes to some kind of different ending. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, "Wow, this is a good this, I like doing that kind of story (laughs) like it was I I, and so and then I look and then uh, the other story in the DNA series that was like that was a young woman who another young woman who had a um tested positive for the BRCA gene that raises the um, so Angelina Jolie famously just um actually went through exactly what the person that I had written about went through. And and she decided to have a prophylactic mastectomy. Mm-hmm. But she had all this tension with her mother. So it was also like a, a story about what DNA, what genetic information can do to families. Because, you know, her mother also had ha- had passed on this gene to her and had had breast cancer, but didn't have that information early enough to even consider whether to have a prophylactic mastectomy and she like was worried for her daughter didn't want her daughter to do it was her daughter she was 33 she wasn't married you know she worried like she wouldn't be able to find a man or she wouldn't you know she wouldn't be able to nurse Mm -hmm. her children so there was so that story also was trying to illustrate this broader issue of what those kinds of tensions what this knowledge can cause these kinds of tensions and ripples in families um anyway those stories because they were like actual narrative stories and they took a long time i could then say after like i got that prize which you know they do care about here <laughs> um you know let me like let me try again well, that's you know? worth it <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's a payoff yeah. for this what's your relationship to those uh subjects i mean you've you've written other pieces about people with als and people with cancer and you know people who have Asperger's or autistic what do you keep these people do they stay in your lives I mean they're different it's different than a normal newspaper story yeah in that way too yeah pr- I, I would say all of my people <laughs> are in my like I, I am in touch with and like I mean I don't talk to them every day but they are you know they are definitely I keep keep up with them because I I'm in their lives for for so long and so intensely <laughs> I mean it's not always like I mean, the Katie Katie Moser, the uh, woman with Huntington's, I w- that was a year-long story also, um, almost a full year. And uh, and Deb, who had the BRCA gene, um, was maybe four months. But, yeah, it's kind of an intense kind of, of reporting. It's an intimate kind of reporting. And so, yeah, I, I talked to, actually when the Angelina Jolie thing happened, I talked to Deb, and we, we did a little follow-up here about where she's at. She right, has, yeah. She's married. She has two kids. <laughs> Is good, <laughs> and the 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 sort of themes of these stories when sort of I was looking at a, at a lot of them and reading a lot of a lot of them and there's this uh, it's such a contrast to the way that science I mean science is often reported in this sort of like 
here's a discovery and uh, here's what it could mean. There's like a lot of promise in it. And your stories always have this intersection of, especially towards the ends of it, I mean, there's a lot of frustration because there's this promise and there's someone sort of struggling to like connect with the science in a way that's going to help them. But a lot of times they don't or they don't know what the outcome's going to be or the outcome is is a frustrating one because the science really doesn't deliver. Right. Is that the kind of story that you're looking for? I'm not looking to sort of expose science as like not, you know, like problematic or and I'm not looking to celebrate it. I mean, but I think there is a lot of, um, you know, it's, it can be double edged, you know, like, like just I mean, gen- specific genetic knowledge can certainly be double edged. I mean, I, and I think we have to like, I mean, often the science kind of outpaces where our like culture is in terms of grappling with it, with the implications of it. And it's true with GMOs too, in a, in a way. I mean, there, there's um, part of the problem with, you know, part of the reason for like this widespread kind of fear about GMOs is just that pe- people don't understand what it is. Um, and so some of the stories I'm, I'm just like, I'm looking for a, an emotional way or like a, a vehicle to through which to get people to read about it. Like it's like an excuse to talk about the science, but not to just explain it. I mean, I just think explanatory, I mean, there's great explanatory science. I don't want to, I don't want to say, but, but my, I feel like the, like my contribution, what I can do is try to tell a story that will engage people in the story. And then like, they'll realize at the end that they learned a little bit about the science. (laughs) For the, uh, for the autism pieces, that seemed you know, particularly true, there's a lot written about autism now and some of it great and about, you know, people are studying and trying to figure it out. And then there's the whole vaccine uh, thing happening. But you, those stories, the kid who's trying to sort of like get a job as an animator and sort of like make his way in as, as an adult. And then the couple who are both have Asperger's and are sort of navigating a romance. I mean, those stories almost they're they just seem like stories about people in a way they weren't. They're not actually totally about the topic in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess with the autism, the first one about um, Justin, this young man who was in high school, his final years of high school, and it was about, you know, whether he would be able to get a job and kind of integrate into society after high school because, you know, there's uh, there's the, the law requires schools, public schools, to kind of take care of kids like him through high school and even like, you know, an, an extra year of high school. And then, but then kind of, that's it. There's mm-hmm. no, afterwards, there's no, I mean, there's some support for kids like him, but there's no like promise of like actual, like join join the world. Um, and so, yeah, and the, the science of, that I, that was kind of like in the background of that story was, was almost like just the ability to better identify um, people like Justin as children um, and 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 the better treatments and better interventions that exist for them now, and so so that's great. So, okay, like we've we've done some something there. Um, you know, we've realized that autism isn't caused by like bad parenting, and we've and we've realized that you know there are certain types of um, types of treatments that can be useful. Um, but you know, then okay, so so now what do we do with people <laughs> like that? Um, and and there was some some like I also just sometimes I try to try to put the science in the links. Oh, really? I just like, like, there's also the whole, like, what causes autism debate, which isn't really a debate, but, um, you know, it it was relevant a little bit to to 
as it was to many families who just wondered, like, what, what caused my child, you know, what caused this to happen? Um, and so in kind of the history part of, of his childhood, I, I didn't want to get into that debate because that's also, it's similar to the GMO thing. Like, it's the, the, the Oranges story was criticized besides the pollen critique, <laughs> which is like, oh, you're too, you know, you're parroting the industry. There was like another critique from this guy at the night, MIT media tracker who was like, oh, you didn't get, you didn't give Monsanto enough response. Yeah, so, you know, it's like, okay, well, which one is it, you guys? But, <laughs> but, but like the, I, I didn't want to, and I embedded some of the debate in links also in the GMO story because if you're telling a story, you got to tell the story. Like, and so you can't digress into every, every little, you know, right, I you tried. Really I mean, at some right. point I did have a much longer draft of both of those stories in which <laughs> all of that was there. But that, that makes me wonder about something else, which is when you're writing these stories, do you feel like you're writing them for the web and not for the paper? I, I mostly do now. Really? I really do mostly, which I shouldn't say because the paper is still what, like the people who buy the paper pay us. Uh, including myself. <laughs> yeah, I so. buy the paper. I read it. And I read both all those stories in the print. Uh, although I went back and checked out because wow. the, the GMO one has like some multimedia stuff. In it. Actually, yes. the autism one had multimedia stuff in it yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, yes, I mean, I do think more about the web audience now. But I also like to see it in the paper. <laughs> and yeah. we are still like, it's, it's so interesting because really the length is is decided by the, pa- like it, it, you know, my, my story was, it started on the front, um, this is the recent one, and then it was two pages inside. And so that is like a defined length. And so that's, what, you know, because w- with the web, you could write it much longer, but. Yeah. And uh, related to the, I think, I think it's related to those, the Austin and Asperger story, you're working on sort of at least a loose concept for a book of some sort, or at least you're gathering string yeah. on something, which I feel like I can talk about because you've publicly asked people to like send you things. So talk about a little bit of what it, what that's about. Yeah. Um, well, well, one thing I guess, so the other, um, the reason, one reason I was thinking about length actually is because, so the second autism story, which was about um, a couple, both of them had Asperger's syndrome and it was kind of like, you know, what is it like to try to have, an intimate relationship when, you know, the main thing that defines your your neurological condition is that you can't sort of put yourself in someone else's shoes. And, and they, you know, it was, I spent some months with them, like, following what their struggle to do that. Um, and that story was... Um, the Times is starting to do these ebooks, so they asked me to expand. So that story was five, like fifty four hundred words, because mm-hmm. it was also start on the front. And it was two pages, and that's the length of two pages with some art. Uh-huh. Um, and so then, but these, as you know, it's, um, the I don't. Does the Atavist have like certain length, um, like a window of length, or just do you have, uh, between five thousand and thirty thousand? Okay, so yeah. this is so. So this was like you know. Between ten and twenty thousand, I was the told. expanded version. Yes, and it was New York version. Times and Byliner. And Byliner. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I did that, and and it was interesting to be able to expand the story because I had all the stuff that I would have liked to have said in the first story. Um, but yeah, the other thing is that I'm trying to collect. Um, Stuff for a book that would focus on the particular interests, like these, they're called perseverations or special interests or pa- of the people on the autism spectrum. So people, it's like 
is one of the two defining characteristics of autism, one being you know, a, a difficulty with social interaction, and the other is like uh, repetitive or restrictive interests. But there's, I'm fascinated by them because you know, they, like w- with Justin, it was, for example, it was animation, the, the young man that I wrote about, um, and he just knew everything there was to know about every animated show and like all the animators. And, um, and so I, I'm interested in what kind of the biology of that. I want to look more at like, what is it mm-hmm. about the brain that makes you able to be so kind of obsessive and drill down so deeply? Um, and then also in just how it, how it affects um, their lives. So uh, I'm kind of collecting those And it feels examples. like it could be a book. Yeah, something like yeah. All right, well, you have also, we know now, another major project in the works, so you have to come back and okay. talk about that when that's done. Too. Yes. All right. Well, thanks very much. Thanks. It was fun to talk to you. This. Thanks. All right. Thanks for listening to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from Longform, our wonderful editors, Lauren Kirchner. Our intern is Robin Jodlowski. And thanks to Amy Harmon for coming on the show and for the New York Times for hosting us there in their New York Times fancy building. See you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.